0: It is, after all, God's word that we come to this morning in order to worship our Lord. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians for a continuation of the message I've titled, The Battle for the Christian Mind. As I did last week, I would like to once again read verses 1 through 17 And so if those of you who are able to stand for that length of time, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, with a thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. It was John Stott who said that the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. The life is dictated by the mind. Where the mind goes, then the life follows. So it is also with the spiritual life. I would tell you that emotion is controlled by the mind, and communication is controlled in the mind. Function and attention and opinion all resonate and begin in the mind. Expression and satisfaction Discussion, action, contemplation, disposition all reside in the mind and even conviction and our inclinations and volition are all controlled by the mind. Every aspect of behavior is controlled by the mind and therefore to be renewed in mind is to be renewed in life. To be transformed in mind is to be transformed in life. Ephesians 4.23 gives us this indication that to change from our most innermost being, it must begin with the mind. It is the renewal of the mind, then, that impacts every part of a person's being. If a person is to be truly transformed, it must begin in the mind. Even the Jewish writers and the Greek philosophers of Paul's day and, and Christ's time all understood and agreed with this premise. They understood that it was a mind that affected a person's attitudes and values, and thus it impacted their lifestyle. To win the spiritual battle, one must win the battle of the mind. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. Before we can engage in a battle with a spiritual enemy, we must be prepared in mind. To battle with an unprepared mind is to battle in defeat. If you are to engage in this spiritual battle, the same battle that all of us have been called to be part of, then we must prepare our minds. It is a mind that controls one's actions. It is a mind that controls one's emotions. It is a mind that controls one's thoughts. And it is a mind that controls one's motives and attitudes. The output of our lives is dependent on the input into our minds. This morning, we once again return to our text of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And we look upon the Lord's word, which here calls the reader's attention to a lifestyle that proceeds from the mind. I want you to remember first the Christians' association found in verse 1. Our text begins, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remember that last week we talked about that people are defined by their associations. The standing of our spouses is often based on our standing, and the standing of us is often based on our spouses. One's role at work determines his value outside of work, and who our friends are often determine how others will evaluate our reputation. For the believer, though, it should be our association with one person, one man that matters. It's not groups of people that define us. It is rather our association with Christ. The call of the first verse is a call for believers to associate themselves with Christ by seeking the things above. Literally, the phrase means to set our hearts upon or set your heart on. That is, that we should be so consumed by our desire for the things above, and more specifically, we should be consumed by our desire for Christ, that it comes out in our lives. As Paul calls the Colossians to this lifestyle, it is a call for all believers. Instead of listening to the false teachings that were taking place at the church, he says instead, turn to Christ. Associate yourselves with who he is. Because who you are in Christ is who you are in life. I want you to note, second, the Christian's ambition. In a verse that closely parallels verse 1, Paul writes, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. The Christian's association from verse 1 is derived from the Christian's ambition in verse 2. That means to seek the things above, or set one's heart on Christ in verse 1, he must set his or her mind on the things above. The direction of your mind will determine the direction of your life. Those who set their minds on the things of earth will lead earthly, fleshly lives, driven by the desires of the flesh. But those who set their minds on the things of heaven will lead heavenly lives. They will seek the things that orient themselves to the things above. The verse following our text showcases two lifestyles. If you begin in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, what you'll see is it begins first with Paul's description of a lifestyle in the flesh, describing those who are earthly as ones who are sexually immoral, impure, full of passion, evil desire, and covetousness. They are known, it says later on, by their anger, and their wrath, and their malice, and slander, and obscene talk. In contrast, those of heaven, it tells us even further down in the text, that because of God's whole choosing, they're holy and beloved. And so they're evidenced by their compassion and their kindness and their humility, their patience and forgiveness and ultimately love. To explore this further, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. And as we turn there, I want you to ask yourself, to what end do those who set their affections on earthly things toil for? What is their reward by endeavoring for earthly things? To answer those questions, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 19, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Notice once again the connection between the mind and the life, that what goes into the mind comes out in life. Notice something more in this particular text. What causes their destruction? It's not merely all their evil ways. It's not only that they've trespassed God's law. Instead, it's actually something far more severe. Look at verse 18, and look how they are described. It reads, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They have shown themselves to be enemies of Christ and Christ's work. In fact, the language here suggests something even more dramatic. Paul's words suggest that not that these individuals have openly declared themselves hostile to the gospel. They have not stood somewhere and said, we do not stand for these things. No, actually, quite on the contrary, it seems that it's quite the opposite. That they're actually going and trying to teach in the name of Christ. One commentator sums up the verse with these words. Implied in Paul's language is that these men did not claim to oppose Christ, but they did not pursue Christ-likeness and manifest godliness. Apparently, they were posing as friends of Christ. And so with their mouths they profess Christ, but with their minds they possess the world. A mindset on the things above has no room to also set itself on the things of earth. One either thinks of the spiritual or they think of the physical. One either thinks of the sufficiency of Christ or dwells on the insufficiency of the culture. One either thinks of sin or the one who conquered sin. Pay attention then to how Paul continues his writing in Philippians 3, saying that their minds are set on earthly things in verse 19, and then he goes on in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In contrast to those who set their minds on earthly things, those who have a citizenship in heaven here set their minds on the things of heaven. The anguish... Excuse me. Let me begin by saying first, placing our minds on heaven transforms our view of cultural disorder. It transforms our view of cultural disorder. Those who have believed upon the cross hold citizenship in heaven. And so our concern is not on the disorder of here. It's on the order of heaven. Any emotion that we may feel anger or angst or whatever it may be because of the things that are going on in the world, those should melt away because our minds shouldn't be immersed in those things. It does not matter what the world and what the culture is doing. What matters is what Christ is doing and so our minds should be immersed in the ways of God. The mind of the earthly dwell on the calamity here but the mind of the heavenly dwell on the serenity there. Placing our minds also transforms our view of physical disease. The text here goes further to signify that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it describes those who are raised in Christ, that their perishable bodies will be replaced with imperishable bodies. Sometimes we can be so consumed by the degeneration of our physical bodies here that we supplant thoughts of our heavenly bodies that are to come. No longer do we need to fear death and disease, but those who have set their minds in heaven anticipate that body. In fact, not that I'm advocating death, but death would be a far greater thing and dealing with the deterioration of our physical bodies. Because at that point, it stops all decomposition and gives us something better that will never break down. As I was thinking through this point, my mind went to three people I know in my life who, up until late into their 90s, were active and physical. Despite all the physical issues that they had, they continued on and labored, One lady in her 90s, in her early 90s, I remember being out in her yard trimming her trees. Another lady, also in her 90s, walked several miles every day. This last month, we had a friend of ours go into the hospital, just days after her 97th birthday. And... The church that we were part of sent out a prayer request for Please pray for healing. Please, please pray that she can make it through. It's, it's physically she's really struggling. I'm not making this up. She, she reached out to the church from the hospital room, said, do not pray for me to be healed. I'm ready to go. Again, she's not suicidal. She's just ready and recognizing that that was far greater than what she was enduring. I even asked permission to share this example But we find it in our own church. If you've watched Jim and Jean Hodges and communicated with them through their health issues, I've loved talking to them because they're always pointing to Christ. Jean's overwhelmed with joy. And I find that encouraging, despite the physical ailments. Not saying that it doesn't impact us here, but it doesn't consume us here. Finally, placing our minds on heaven transforms our view of spiritual destitution. It says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one man is entitled to that title, Savior. The man, of course, is Jesus Christ, because only he has ever acted as a Savior by saving people from their sins. Those who set their minds on heaven then set their minds on Christ. Consumed by his holiness, they are overwhelmed by their sinfulness. And in awe of his significance, they worship because of their insignificance. It's true that we can never think of Christ as he deserves. But it is Christ who should fill our thoughts. While our finite minds cannot fathom an infinite God... God has been gracious in revealing himself sufficiently enough that we can at least perceive his wonder and his majesty. We can look upon creation and identify his glorious majesty. We can look upon the earth and observe his mighty power. And we can certainly look on our own lives and perceive his incomprehensible grace. The Christian's ambition is to see God To set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And in this way we behold our God, seated on his throne. And so come, let us adore him. Never will we fully comprehend, but we may apprehend him. And so the Christian sets his mind on the things above, so that he may have his heart set on the God above. I want you to note third the Christian's argumentation of verse 3. Reading in the text, it states, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As noted by that connecting word for, this verse becomes the argument for the preceding verses. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, they issue these commands, and now we have the reason for those commands essentially it's saying because you have died and your life is hidden with christ seek the things above set your minds on those things readers are given two reasons in this text for setting their minds on christ we read first that the believers have died this is a strange phrase here because clearly paul is writing to people who are living so we must ask ourselves in what sense did they die Paul's known for his metaphors, specifically in which he equates the flesh with sin. And therefore, when he writes of death here, we can conclude he means spiritual death, not physical. This presentation of spiritual death is the heart of the text of Romans 6. Beginning in, in verse 6 of Romans 6, Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him Those who are in Christ here have died with Christ. They have killed off those evil longings. No longer is there a need to fulfill the desires of the flesh because the flesh has died. Why is it then that so many professing Christians then choose to live a life of the flesh rather than a life of the spirit? It was our sins that executed Christ, and in return, Christ executed our sins. And so, no more is there a need for us to live in the flesh. And yet, so frequently, that is what so many professing believers do. And even more scary is they do so willfully. They know what they do is wrong, and yet they still persist. It's not wrong because it merely is a rejection of God's law. Sin is wrong because any sin is a rejection of God's Son. And yet those people choose to hold nothing back. In fact, they desire, they have no desire to hold back their sins and desire to fulfill their flesh. Unfortunately, it is because those who do this have no idea, first, of what it means to be crucified with Christ. And second, they have no desire, no longing, and no clue how to stifle that sin, and instead what they've done is stifled their life in Christ. To live with Christ, one must die with Christ. Paul's argument goes further in this text, though, saying not only have they died, but then in Colossians 3.3 it says that they have their lives hidden with Christ in God. Up until this point, perhaps you've noted that Colossians reads very much like a treasure map, one that's guiding its readers towards the God's hidden riches. In chapter 1, we saw Paul write of God's mystery that was hidden for the generations, but through his word, that mystery has been revealed through the gospel. In chapter 2, he writes of Christ, noting that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now in chapter 3, we have the life of a believer, hidden in Christ. And so once again, we find ourselves asking, what does it mean to be hidden? Throughout scripture, this term is often meant to denote safety or security. We see this in Psalm 27.5, when the author writes, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Peter uses this term in that same way in, in 1 Peter 1, 1.4 to convey God's protection and the security of the believer. And certainly, we could read that into our text here and, and expect that our lives hidden in Christ are indeed secure. We know that just because of the loving character of who Christ is and Christ himself declared that. But Paul uses this word differently in Colossians. He uses it in another sense. And what he does is he indicates that when something is hidden, it is obscured. Nobody can see it. Why, though, would the Colossian believers need to be hidden? The answer is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it's written, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The life of the Colossian believers are hidden in the sense that those who are not believers do not understand a believer's lifestyle. They have no understanding of what or, what or why a person would even commit themselves to someone who died on the cross. They have no understanding of why a person will abandon his whole life for the sake of the one, one life in Christ. And they have no understanding of why somebody will abandon living in the world for the sake of living in heaven. To the natural man, this is folly. It's foolishness. And the result is the world may mock and jeer and laugh and question, asking who we are and what we do, but that's simply because they've been blinded to the ways of God, and the ways of God, man in God in this case. They don't understand what a believer does. And in one sense... It's not important for the world to understand because they're not going to until they first understand the gospel. And so only when they see the gospel will this be revealed. Until they understand the gospel, they will not understand anything spiritual. For that reason, God has made the gospel clear and obscured other spiritual truths. Because the first thing that people need to know is that. Believers have died with Christ then. They've crucified the sinful flesh, and now they have a life that is hidden. We in Christ with God. And for that reason, Paul has called us to set our minds on the things above. I want you to note, finally, the Christian's aspiration. The Christian's aspiration in verse 4, Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. On Wednesday night, I said the greatest cultural dilemma faced by people today is one of anthropology. Anthropology is the study of humans and human existence. And that study has created or caused the questions that seem to perplex humans today. What are the questions that most people have? Usually it is, what is my purpose in this world? Or what value do I have? But those questions can't be answered because the study of human existence has failed to study human existence. The best answer that anthropology can offer, the study of humans can offer, is that human existence was an accident. That it was a mere manner of chance. Well, to say that creation was an accident is to say that humans have no value. If there was no purpose for creation, then a life has no purpose. If the existence of a person was nothing more than a matter of chance, then there's no need to care for that person. And then what's happened? Hate becomes tolerated in any form. Partiality becomes routine. Suicide is understandable. Abortion is acceptable and murder is simply bearable. If humans are simply a product of random chance, then it really doesn't matter what they do with their lives. When life is declared to be nothing more than a product of chance circumstances, then life has become minimized and without value. This is where theology is important. The value of human life is found in the value of Christ. And so, what anthropology can't answer, theology can. Only when our lives are tied to the Creator do our lives become valuable. Because only then can we tie our value to a purpose. Because that purpose is found in God. There are no accidents with God, there are no mistakes, there are no chance encounters. Our God is purposeful. He is calculated. And so everything that he does is to bring about the fruition of his plan. And so all that has given life by God must have a purpose for God's plan. Before us in our text is the revelation of God's purposes for man. The Christian aspiration is to appear with Christ in glory. At a predetermined time, a point unknown to man, but known to God, Christ will return. In his majesty and in his radiance, Jesus will once again become visible in all of his glory. The Apostle John describes this in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, which was part of our text this morning. We read this, Revelation 19, verse 11 Upon his return, Christ will be revealed by his substance, by who he is in character. He is called here faithful and true. His attributes, his character, who he is literally become his name. And then it says his righteousness will be on display. This is no ordinary man. This is a Christ who revealed the truth of God by laying down his life for those who did not know the truth. And so indeed, he is the faithful and true. The glory of Christ is revealed in the character of Christ. Upon his return, the glory of Christ will also be revealed by his sentencing. He returns as a righteous judge, and he will execute his judgment. It comes here in the form of violent wrath. It says his robe is dipped in blood. That is, there is so much blood, it is steeped into his robe. This is not the blood of martyrs. This is the blood of those reaping the judgment of their ways. From his mouth comes a sharp short sword, and with it he will strike down the nations. The explicit wrath of Christ is an expression of the explicit holiness of Christ. Because he is righteous, his wrath must prevail against all unrighteousness. And so in pronouncing judgment, Christ is announcing that he alone is sovereign, he alone is Lord, and he alone is glorious. The anger of Christ reveals the glory of Christ. Notice also that upon his return, the glory of Christ will be revealed by his status. By his status. Again, he is no ordinary man. He's not even an ordinary ruler. The text says in Revelation 19 that his name is the word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh are written the names King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not merely a king or a lord. But he is the highest of all kings. He is the greatest of all lords. There is no king and no lord greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. No person, no God, and certainly no idol will ever rank higher than Jesus Christ. And so, again, in all his majesty and in all his honor and in all his glory, Jesus Christ will indeed return. At that time, he will be vindicated. He will be proven to be everything he ever claimed to be. To all of those who ever doubted, he will be lifted up as their deity. To those who crucified him, his claims as Messiah will be verified. And to all those who ever suffered for him, he will be their savior. In fact, notice the text in Colossians 3. And even here in Revelation, Christ does not appear alone. In our text in Colossians, Paul tells the Colossians, when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To the Corinthians, Paul writes regarding disagreement between believers. And despite both parties supposedly being Christians, being committed to Christ, it says in in 1 Corinthians that they actually seek their judgment from a secular world. So you have believers professing Christians going into the world for judgment. And so Paul admonishes them. And he does so by appealing to end times. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? The day will come indeed when the saints will appear with Christ in glory and reign with him in heaven. Earlier we read from Romans chapter 6, reading about the death of a Christian's flesh. But what we didn't read in that text and in Romans 6 were the previous verses and Verse 4 and verse 5, both of which stipulate that if Christians have been united in death with Christ, they will one day also be resurrected and united with Christ in that way. Consider something more. Just as Christ has been vindicated, so too will the Christians be vindicated. Again, in Revelation 19 that we just read, we have this glorious appearance of Christ, But if you turn the page to Revelation 20, you have the appearing of the saints with Christ. And so we read in verse 4 of Revelation 20, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's important to note that that verse follows the tribulation. So the people on earth at that time had endured seven years of the most intense anguish and affliction and oppression and persecution that anybody has ever seen. And at one point, the beast will call upon them to worship him and not God. But some of them will not. They have turned their lives over to Christ. Having seen the truth for themselves, they will no longer seek the world's ways which lead to death. And so because they will not worship the beast, nor get the mark of the beast, they are cut off from society. No doubt, some of them are found out and they will be martyred. We're told that. But when Christ returns and restores order, he announces judgment against those who stood up against him. Alongside him are those who died a martyr's death in that time. And they're seated on thrones. Remember our verse in Colossians 3. The text says to set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Do you remember last week what the significance of seated was? Last week, I brought that up, that that seated implies that it is participation with the glory and the rule of God. So Christ seated at the right hand of God means that he is seated there to rule and reign with God. And now we have the martyrs who are seated. Again, also participating in the glory and the reign and judgment of Christ. The ones who were judged by the rulers of earth now act as rulers of heaven to judge those on earth. They have been vindicated. And while the world did not see them as saints, they will appear with Christ as saints. Remember the previous verse. The Colossians had died with Christ. And when they died, their life was hidden. But now their life appears. It appears with Christ. And they will be raised with Christ. And all those who did not understand how a Christian could deny all those earthly pleasures or even deny himself or herself to those people, suddenly they're going to understand it will be revealed. All the times that people thought Christians were foolish for following nothing but an ancient text and an ancient mind, suddenly ancient mind man, and suddenly it's revealed that Christians were the wisest of all. Every time they were labeled as hateful for following God's truth, it will be suddenly revealed that they weren't being hateful. In fact, they were being loving. Not that they always did it in the right way, but it was the deepest form of love. A love for God followed by a love for others. Not wanting people to perish in their sins. This is a Christian's aspiration to appear with Christ in his glory. And that's where we see the value of human life. The human life is valuable because it has value in Christ. In Christ, we find our purpose to be glorified by him so that we may glorify him. And so as Christ is vindicated in his glory, so too the Christian will be vindicated in Christ's glory. Rather quickly, I want you to notice something about verse 4. Colossians 3, verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear we focused much that Paul is describing a future event, that one day those who have called upon Christ will indeed appear with Christ, that it will happen in the future. And while it may indeed happen in the future, Paul uses this word is, present tense, to indicate that the in Christ is a believer's life now. Christ doesn't become our life then in the future when we're raised. Christ is already our life. The future is just when we get to participate with him in glory. And so that is to say that our anticipation of this future creates a lifestyle that occurs now. In these four verses, is summed up the Christian life. The believer is distinguished from an unbeliever by his association with Christ. And as a result of setting his mind on the things above, he will have his whole lifestyle set on Christ. Because he died with Christ and one day he will be glorified with him. This is a Christian's association. A life associated with no one else but Christ. This is a Christian's ambition. To be oriented towards God by setting his mind on the things above. And this is a Christian's argumentation. The reason for setting your mind on things above is because we have died with Christ and our life is hidden with Him. And this is a Christian's aspiration. We look forward to Christ's return in glory so that those of us who believe may appear with Him in glory. Where your mind is, there your heart is. And where your mind is, there your life is. Many years ago, a man once said, Our greatest resource is the minds of our children. I don't think that statement was born out of fear or out of recognition of God as creator. That statement was meant to elevate and talk about the point of a family and raising up children by saturating their minds with the right things. That man was Walt Disney. And Disney had a unique strategy. His goal was to build an entertainment empire for kids. That model worked for some time because, indeed, Disney was a trusted, reliable source for family entertainment for a while. But that model also depended upon a healthy family. And so as society got further away from a healthy family, Disney could no longer thrive in the same way. So as the family started to break down, the Disney Corporation had to adjust. What does Walt Disney's business model have to do with our text this morning? Because even a secular world recognizes that what goes into the mind comes out in life. Certainly in many ways, we could argue that Disney today has gotten away from this vision of Walt Disney in the past. But the premise still holds true. Initially, We all know that Disney resisted pressure to stand up against the bill in Florida about curriculum in the schools, and I'm not here to debate or discuss or talk about that. But when he was pressed about why Disney would not actively involve itself, the CEO said something important. He basically said, the reason we don't need to stand up in legislation is because we have more power in the media. We have more power in the creation of content of our movies and our shows than we would ever have in legislation. He just said media is more powerful than law. It's more powerful than legislation. And so once again, it affirms something. If you want to influence people in society, you do it by directing their mind towards those things. These are not new trends of psychology. This is not something research brought about. Paul's already written about this almost 2,000 years ago. We already know that the direction of your mind determines the direction of your life. And so it underscores a heavy emphasis that we must guard what goes into our minds and that we must set our minds and set our purposes and all our objectives on the things above. Guard your mind and guard your life. Elevate your mind. You would elevate your life. Purify your mind. Purify your life. Remembering that who you are in life is who you are in Christ. Who you are in life should be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed we look to you and and, and look to this text grateful for who you are because in it we see your purposes and we see your glory and we see your honor and, and through that we see our own purposes. And so Father, I pray that you would continue to expose us to the cross. Expose us to your Son, especially this morning as we begin to remember his death, burial, and resurrection once again. Father, I I pray that you would convict us, you would convince us, Lord, what does our thought life reveal about us? May we align our thoughts towards you so that our hearts may be aligned towards you as well. Give us a time of deep introspection this morning. That we may draw nearer to you. And may who we are in life be who we are in Christ. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.